This is KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. Coming up, Subversity with Dan Zhang. The opinions expressed on the show are not necessarily those of the regions of the University of California, nor the management of KUCI. Today we're going to be um, remembering a people's historian, Him Mark Lai, who died in 2009, but uh, in May, but um, his um, life was commemorated recently, uh, just last week, last Thursday, at the... Uh, annual conference, the 30th annual conference of the Association for Asian American Studies that met in Austin, Texas. And Subversity was there to record segments of this uh, remembrance of Him Mak Lai. We're going to dedicate the show today to um, progressive actor, radical actor, uh, Corin Redgrave of the famous Redgrave family, whom we talked with um, back in 1999 in um, in June um, or in May but uh, the broadcast was aired on Subversity June 1st 1999 and he was at the Toronto Film Festival uh, the at uh, showing of uh, at an appearance of a film that he was in where he played the the white uh, gay uh, director um Play, play director, theater director, uh, in a play called The Man Who Drove with Mandela. And that uh, scene, uh, that film was about the two of them, Mandela and this guy, uh, Cecil Williams, who was a gay um, theater director who helped uh, the movement uh, win in South Africa. But at the time, they were caught. And then that was when Mandela began his uh, decades-long uh, imprisonment uh, in South Africa. But we talked with uh, Corin then, who died a week ago, about his life, his um, radical life, and also the lives, the lives of his family, including his uh, bisexual father, how he knew about it, and his um, fellow... Um, political activist, uh, Vanessa Redgrave. So we're going to try to uh, see if we can uh, bring you a segment. The, uh, the segment we aired uh, back in 1999 that was uh, with, uh, with uh, Corin Redgrave. Uh, so let's go to this. What did you do to this, uh, to play uh, this character, Cecil Williams? Well, um... It's, it's, it's such a fascinating sort of segment or cross-section of, of history, um, literary, social, political history that's contained in this one man. Um, and some of the things about his life I found great, uh, an immediacy of sympathy with, because I, I have always been a political person myself, and I've always believed that if one is if one has political convictions, one should act on them. And I, I, I had great sympathy for that side of Cecil, Cecil's life. But he, did you see him as a, as a uh, kind of a model for using theatre in some way to change society? He's, he, he's a fascinating model because he clearly did use theatre to, to teach people. And because he was a very good teacher, all that comes out in the film. Right. Yeah. Um, 
he didn't make the mistake which some teachers make of believing that, that you have to achieve a total conversion. For example, there's a, there's a woman who speaks in the film about halfway through who says, thanks to Cecil Williams, she's an, she, was, she was an actor in the theatre, I became a member of, a lib, of the Liberal Party. And the Liberal Party was a sort of, a kind of a halfway, uh, but somewhere between the conservative or nationalist politics and progressive politics. Nevertheless, for Cecil, that would have represented a victory because it would have been a move in the direction of progress. And, um, and that's a mark of his teaching, that he helped all sorts of people discover more about themselves and about the world that they were living in through the theatre. And he never separated his theatre from his politics, except in his own person, of course. And there he, there he did. But that's something more to do with his time. What I also sympathise with very much is the fact that he's having to lead a double life or a yeah. clandestine life. My father was gay, or bisexual, oh, right. and um, lived in much the same period. He died in 1985, so... But he was, he was, he would have been a contemporary of Cecil Williams. And of course, all his, most of his adult life, he was at risk of um, exposure. Yes, of exposure and indeed of, 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 of legal, of, of being criminalized by the law as other actors occasionally were. Did you know, did you know that yourself? Did you know about him when you were growing up? Yeah, in a way I did, I both did and didn't because he never discussed it with me when I was growing up. But at the same time I, I, I knew, I knew that, um, I knew instinctively by a sort of um, yeah. family osmosis yeah, that, yeah. That, that because I understood the nature of his friendships yeah. um, and those he wasn't secretive about his 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 his, 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 his lovers not only did he bring them home, they lived with us and became our, became our uncles, our, our, our most familiar and adored friends. Um, so in that respect, he wasn't seen. No. But he never talked about it. Um, and he certainly, I suppose like many men of his generation, was in fear because only a very few, I suppose, friends and Christian, that you could claim as an outstanding example, who overcame that fear and proclaimed his, his life and his sexuality, but very few were able to do so, and we shouldn't judge them in the fact that they weren't able to do right, so right, right. Because that, that, those are the conditions it's of different times, time. yeah. yeah. How about your... Is your, does your sister Vanessa like being in Parliament? In Parliament? Is she, is she, she a minister? Not, she's not I'm a member of Parliament. Oh, she's a minister. Sorry. No, no, she's not. She's no, not. no, no. Who's no. her minister? Um, no. Oh, she's not. She's no. still a party member. She's an active party member of, yeah. of, of, of the Marxist Party. Yeah, very, oh, yeah. very active and very active in human rights as well. She's um, very um, outspoken and active. Um, and she, does she campaign for... Is she running for office? No. no. No, she's, no, she's, she, she's not running for office. Um, we have, both of us, at, at different times, oh, yeah. stood, stood for Parliament, and we never got elected. Um, what party were you with? The Marxist Party. Oh, okay. yeah. yeah. Um, Is she with the same party? Yes. Oh, yeah. yes. How does your other family members think of that? Um, I think they've come to terms with it quite well. Uh -huh. okay. so, for a while they were worried about it, because also that left us 
at risk of, of being victimized in our professional lives, which they were. Oh, I see. But for a while. They backlisted. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Really? Wow. But now it's okay. It's okay now, yes. Yeah. That's both a good thing and a bad thing. It's a good thing for us, it's a good thing for other artists who aren't like this anymore. Maybe not such a good thing if one considers the reason why, which is that people aren't, at the moment, this, this, the, the, the ruling class and the powers that be are not so afraid of socialism. So, that, so you have to... It's not a threat as much. It's not a threat to them. They feel it's not a threat. I think, I think in the long term they're wrong. Uh, absolutely wrong. But they, they, they feel it's not, they're not stressed by it. So, but we must be grateful for the fact that that means that we're not like this. Are you going to run again, you think? No. No. I'm not. I'd encourage other people to run there. Oh, yeah. Great. Thanks a lot. Thank you. I'll give you my card. So that was our interview with um, Corin Redgrave of the Redgrave, famous Redgrave acting family, uh, talking about his socialism and um, his uh, acting in this that particular movie where he played a gay communist leader uh, in the African South African struggle. Uh, that was aired uh, on Subversity in 1999, June 1st, and he died a week ago. And we dedicate this show, this issue, this edition of Subversity to uh, Corin Redgrave as we remember another activist and um, documentarian, uh, in this case a documentarian and historian, the people histor- people's historian, uh, him Mark Lai, um, who um, was born in San Francisco's Chinatown and became a physics person, but... Uh, in the end, is more known for his research and documentation of Chinese-American life in Chinese America. I just came back from a weekend, uh, kind of several several days of a conference in Austin, Texas, of the Association for Asian American Studies, and um, arrived late last night. And um, so I'm pleased to bring some of the audio of this panel discussion, remembering Himmak Lai. And introducing the session, uh, we'll hear her in progress, is Madeline Shu, um, who helped organize this conference. At the un- um, She's at the University of Texas, Austin. Okay, so um, I edited that anthology, which, um, well... Uh, yeah, so, so Hemmock was trained as an engineer, and so let's say there was a lot of editing that happened. Uh, I didn't really mess with um, his really uh, extensive research but just to try to clean up his language. And uh, we went through about two or three revision processes, and it was a very labor-intensive process. So we started all of this way back in 2006, and the entire project took you know, many more years than either I or the press had expected, but um, uh, I think Kimmark understood, and we also understood that this was likely to be his last publication into which he would be able to actively participate. He was diagnosed with um, cancer in uh, 2006, and I remember at the time we were sitting, uh, me, Kimmark, and Lorelai in a dim sum restaurant in San Francisco Chinatown when he told me and um, for those of you who know him that he had these two open heart surgeries which did not uh, 
uh, conquer him, but I had the sense when he told me about the cancer that this was it. And so I felt a tremendous sense of commitment to work with him on this final project because, you know, after all the generosity and all the help he has given to so many of the rest of us in terms of sharing his research, sharing his archival findings, and just being incredibly generous in a way that, you know, I think most scholars who are in the academy are not, um, that this was something that was really owed to him. So um, um, I think these, all these are, these fall far short of capturing his full range of research and writings. I think they do, um, they are some of his most important work. Uh, and so I thought it was important to try to honor him and to, um, you know, to give back a little of what he has given to the rest of us. Um, and, you know, and I'm sure there are many other stories of this sort and experiences. Um, so I want to briefly introduce our panel, our distinguished panel of speakers, some of whom have known and worked with him, Mark, for really literally decades, uh, and um, to speak to different aspects of his career. Uh, to go, uh, I thought we should go in order of those who have known him the longest. So we're going to start yeah. with Lin Chi Wong, who is um, emeritus professor from UC Berkeley, um, head, longtime head of ethnic studies there, and himself a very early scholar in Chinese American history, but also a uh, community activist. Uh, we will then move to Russell Leon, who is the editor of Amerasia Journal, also longtime working experience with him, Mark. Um, and then we will move to Jack Chen, who is currently of NYU and also was founder of the Chinatown History Project, which is currently Museum of Chinese in the Americas. So like him, Mark, somebody who has been bridging the academy and the community. Next we'll have Sue Lee, who is currently director of the Chinese Historical Society of America, which was an organization near and dear to Mark's um, you know, visions and beliefs. And last but not least, we'll have Andrea Louie, who is a professor at Michigan State University and um, did her research project on uh, the In Search of Roots program, which brought young Chinese Americans, taught them about Chinese American history, and helped them literally go back to China in search of their roots. She herself was an intern in this program, and then she wrote about it uh, with using fairly uh, sophisticated uh, theoretical um, concepts. So this is our group. And then at the end, I'm hoping that um, we'll also hear from the audience. Um, this really is more about sharing our memories about him more. Um, so I'm glad you could all be present. <coughs> that was Madeline Shu of UT oh, Texas. Okay. We have a, a little clip of him, Mark, talking about his own research. So um, that's um, the taken from an interview that Felicia and I think Jack had conducted before him Mark passed away last year. Uh, and I think it's, it's a nice reminder of um, him Mark himself. And the book is uh, Chinese American Transnational Politics, which was edited by Madeline Xu with an introduction. Well, I, I thought it would be a good thing to do with Chinese-American research. I don't know, research is important in the 
kind of stuff with whatever is available, then doing a bit of there, that's all, that's all, and try to get in the holes, and that's what I do. Thank you. 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 So this is uh, from a panel discussion at the Asian American Studies Conference. Well, he's doing good for the community. He's doing good for the uh, future generations. So I, I think, uh, you know. That's his wife, uh, Lorelai. That's, he's doing some good. And we've been living happily ever after. He also did the same thing, 
and uh, so I wanted to talk a little bit about them. And I think to understand and appreciate really the significance of human life work, one has to go back to the uh, you know the, the, the dark ages of uh, in American history and and the absence of Chinese American history. And my favorite example is really to take a look at, for instance, the two highly celebrated and still remain to this day extremely important uh, historical study of Chinese in America. Uh, one at the beginning, 2000, uh, 1909, Mary Coolidge, 500 page Chinese immigration. All, all those people who are interested in that subject matter have to consult with Mary Coolidge to this day is still the most authoritative work. And then the other one, at the other end of history, is uh, Winter Box, Bitter Strength, published in 1964 uh, by Harvard University Press. Now these two works, in some way, uh, you know, covering of more than a half a century, represent what Chinese American history was like before the, you know, the arrival of Mbappai and the advent of Chinese American studies and Asian American studies. Because, you know, in spite of the thickness of that work, Coolidge's work, you know, when it comes to, you know, in the beginning of the book, he always, in the preface, he tries to acknowledge all the people that have helped you uh, and make the writing of this book possible. Well, guess how Mary Coolidge acknowledged that about the Chinese movement. You know, he said, you know, this book could not have been written without the nameless Chinaman. Essentially, nameless and faceless Chinaman, who was really the subject matter of the book, 500 pages, and yet she could not cite anybody to, to acknowledge that that helped help her uh, bringing about this, this important piece of work. And in fact, in fact, if you go through it, there are a few quotes, mostly from Chinese diplomats, hardly anybody from the Chinese American community. And then on the other end of history, you know, good to part. 1964, the landmark civil rights legislation. And yet, you know, this book came out uh, at a time when, when uh, you, know, there's, you know, America is in the middle of a huge protest, and the man seemed to have no awareness of, uh, you know, racial sensitivity and what was going on in the country and, and what his subject matter, the history of Chinese in the 19th century, seemed to have no effect on him in terms of his interpretation. And then he also said the same thing. In a, he said, well, you know, people are going to criticize me for um, lack of uh, Chinese sources in my book. And then you know how he explained it away? Well, this is what he said. He said that, uh, that you know, he's, uh, because of, you know, he blamed his lack of Chinese sources on the lack of conventional sources uh, of their history on the illiterate and poor, poorly educated sojourners. Uh, so illiterate and poorly uh, educated sojourners, meaning that there are no sources for Chinese American history. Uh, now, you know, these two books remain to this day very authoritative work and continue to be very influential in the writing of California history. Uh, and yet, these are the two people that have no, no, no sources at all on uh, You know, they write about Chinese Americans, but they only give you the, you know, the, 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 well, what Roger Daniels called the excluders view 
of the Chinese Americans. So such was the uh, state of Chinese American historiography before the arrival of Hima Wai in the mid-1960s and the advent of Chinese and Asian American <coughs> studies in 1969. Um, now, I think first, I'd like to make some mention to the major contribution that he had made to the field. First and foremost, of course, is his uh, tireless rescuing, collecting, cataloging, preserving, and sharing of uh, conventional historical sources in both Chinese and English. The sources carelessly either ignored or dismissed as non-existent uh, by both Chinese and non-Chinese historians alike. And that's really you know, tragic. So for nearly four decades, Nimawai methodically searched for and collected them, the result of which, of course, are compiled in two volumes. Um, uh, one is called the Chinese Newspaper Published in North America, 1854 to 1975. Uh, he did that with uh, Carl Lowe. And then the other one, of course, is a compilation of all the Chinese language sources that he had collected called A History Reclaimed, the an an Annotated Bibliography of Chinese Language Materials in the in, um, on the Chinese in America, published in 1986. Now, since their publication, no credible historians of Chinese America can afford to ignore them. Now, in addition to these two particular volumes, he, of course, has also uh, worked with uh, Judy Young and Jenny uh, Lim to uh, put out uh, the public the, uh, the Angel Island poem, which is a very important, important source of the translations attached to it. But again, unknown to most people, sadly to say, there's actually another very important volume. It's a compilation of the work of uh, Wu Jingnan, otherwise known as Gilbert Wu, Wu Jinglang, who was the editor and publisher of a leading Chinese newspaper, a weekly, in the from 1940s to uh, the time he died in 1980. And, uh, and then also before that, he was a, a writer and commentator in Chinese time during the 1930s. So he, you know, what he did was that when he, when Gilbert Wu died, he compiled all the major essays. And I consider Gilbert Wu to be the one of the most important the keenest observer of Chinese American community from the 1930s all the way to the time uh, he died. Uh, you know, and that is now available in one volume. And of course, you know, you could also find his work on the you know, association in Chinese schools in the uh, volume that he published from Chinese to, to, to Chinese American. Um, you know, all which are based in among the Chinese language sources that you use. So that's, I think, you know, and the good news, of course, to all of us is that five, six years ago, uh, long before he died, he decided to co contribute to donate the entire collection to uh, UC Berkeley uh, Ethnic Studies Library, the Asian American collection. And we spent two years with a grant from the National Archive uh, to hire activists catalog all the stuff that he collected and donated two years, 150,000 thanks to uh, National Archive that are now online that you could actually 
you know, you log into it, you see both the ethnic studies, uh, Asian American collection, and then MLI collection. You know, we now have actually over 100 collections, MLI being only one of them, uh, 100 or so uh, collections in our library, and it's voluminous. You know, it took two years uh, to, to just catalog them. Um, secondly, I think, you know, um, you know, Myanmar, of course, are very unhappy with the way the Chinese American were depicted, you know, by the, in the mainstream uh, history. And so with, the, with uh, you know, Thomas Chin and Phil Choi, uh, again, both of whom are amateur historians, uh, the three of them, of course, put out two volumes, uh, you know, the first comprehensive history of Chinese in America, the first one called A History of the Chinese in California and Syllabus published in 1969. And then uh, another one with Phil Choi, when he was asked to teach the first Chinese American history class at San Francisco State. Uh, in, uh, and he, they, they put together something called History of the Chinese in America, an outline, which eventually was uh, published in 1972. I think these two works will present important framework for understanding uh, Chinese American experience and also outline the area for future research. And finally, of course, in 2004, you know, a thoroughgoing authoritative seminal study on key organizations and institutions in Chinese American community, becoming Chinese American history of community and institutions. Now, in this book, that you will find a real study of a Chinese American community organizations. I mean, Chinese-American organization has been a favorite subject for non-Chinese in the past. From uh, the time of Reverend William Spear of the 1850s to today's you know, Stanford Lyman, who has, you know, in fact, his PhD dissertation in Berkeley, Sociology Department, based on the social organization of Chinese community in Chinatown in the 19th century. All of these could only describe on the surface what these social organizations, you know, what they, what they were, when in fact, you know, there's a lot of things going on in these organizations, and if you want to know some of these organizations, this is the book. You know, not the kind of, oh, you know, there's the Samyang Association, or there's the Wong Family Association, and then, you know, the best thing that they could do is to maybe put out some translated bylaw, but nothing about the political, social interactions and cultural activities of these organizations and how they maintain their identity, their autonomy, the kind of activities they undertake. You know, all this you can read um, this very important work and which really represents, I think, the kind of work that you can do uh, out of these uh, Chinese language sources. So the third area then, uh, even though you know, Himalai was not among the original founders of the Chinese Historical Society, in 1963, he very quickly became the pillar and the leader in uh, moving the society in the direction of professional history, hosting periodical uh, conferences and publishing, of course, uh, journals and books, the most important of which has been, of course, the series entitled uh, Chinese America, History and Perspectives that began in 1987. And so far, again, Keep track of how many volumes I have. Okay. Okay. Twenty-two. 
Okay. So you can see, you know, all the people who do pioneer work can find this as an outlet to get their work out there. And last but not least, of course, is the mentorship that we provided for generations of Chinese Americans. And I don't really, I mean, all you do is to pick out any of the recent studies, uh, including Mather's work. Uh, you know, and you will find that everybody expressed their indebtedness to the generosity of, in terms of time and resources that he gave to them. So in my life, really, even though he was an engineer, he was a very passionate person about when it comes to Chinese American history, he spared no expenses in uh, crisscrossing the United States uh, from all the Chinatowns in major city to all the rural Chinatowns to gather materials from these. And if you can believe it, the man never learned how to drive. <laughs> and the person that really made all this possible was that woman in his life. You know, I often wonder whether, you know, um, a Laura married, came out alive or married to the Chinese American scholarship. <laughs> because that's, you know, it really truly is a husband and wife effort uh, that, uh, that we now have. So in case you are interested in pursuing more about my life's uh, collection, uh, go online and take a look at the uh, book the collection that he has generously donated all of my resources. Thank you. You're listening to Sophistia on KCL. Uh, since, you know, uh, has been associated with uh, so many institutions, including uh, San Francisco State, UC Berkeley, and UCLA, at least from 1977 on, uh, where we had published work with him and published a history to reclaim a bibliography of Chinese language resources. Uh, Mark was also on the editorial board of the Asian Journal uh, uh, for uh, over uh, 30 years. Uh, and he also he often gave me much uh, much advice. His main advice was, "How come you don't publish more on Chinese Americans?" <laughs> I said, "Well, we're Asian American; we have to publish on everybody." But uh, his advice was basically uh, that uh, many times jokingly. Uh, Mark had written an autobiographical essay in the year 2000, where he shared his uh, vision of a of a new China. Uh, and he was talking about his uh, expectations of uh, China in the 40s and the 50s, and let me quote him. He says, I was among those who entertained great hopes for the new China and struggled to overthrow foreign domination and feudal rule. And the Marx hope has come to pass, uh, but Marx has also, uh, by his example and by his work, I think he has helped to make Chinese Americans like myself, who was born and raised in Chinatown, also uh, give us a new sensibility. Uh, Chinatown was pretty feudal and pretty dominated by a lot of things like racism, the KMT, etc. But uh, by learning from Mark, I think we learned to accept ourselves as uh, Chinese Americans in a new era with a new China and the possibilities for a new kind of community. So personally, that was what he uh, had given to me. In 1980, uh, M.R. Bly, along with uh, Judy, uh, Judy Young and uh, Jenny Lin, published uh, <coughs> Island Poetry and History of Chinese Immigrants and on Angel Island. And uh, in that collection, Mark said, well, 
it stood the test of time because it's still being used both in the U.S. and also uh, in China as well. Uh, Chinese scholars have actually utilized uh, some of these early uh, uh, poems. Uh, thus, to honor Mark Lai and to bring out some of his remarkable character, I would like to read two poems. <laughs> Records of the Historian, written for Mark's birthday in 1995 at a, at a Chinese banquet. And a poem I just wrote a few days ago called Laura Jung and My Mother. And uh, as a Chinatown poet, I continue to be inspired by Mark's vision and his uh, words and by those early migrant workers who, through the brevity of a poem, could convey their experiences and emotions. Uh, I'm not a scholar, I'm a, I'm a writer. And so I'd like to entertain you with uh, these uh, two poems. And here's my tribute to Mark and Laura. Maybe I can just stand up because uh, I need to get some cheese. <laughs> they say, uh, okay. Russell Young. Records of the Historian, October 28, 1995, for Moon and tide thread the Pacific. Thus begins the journey of a man who walks between two continents to gather materials for his records. 2,000 years ago, Sima Chen pointed his pen at the Han Emperor, recorded the lives of citizens and merchants, farmers, fortune tellers, and medicine men. 2,000 years later, a descendant of the Duke of Spring and Autumn, of the Max of Ye, of the Iron Man of ancient days, great, 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 great grandson of Ma Bing and the son of Yok Bing, Plain folks who harvested other people's land. Brown hands that picked mulberry bushes, netted fish for food, wove silk to sell. To this lineage, Mark Lai Him was born, a man of Nanhai, son of migrants during the Great Depression of America. Moon and tide thread the Pacific, lighting the face of a 13-year-old boy who reads books by a Grant Avenue window. From water margin, three kingdoms, and journey to the west, he learns how men, monks, and magical monkeys derive truth from history. He joins 3,000 marchers on the docks to picket ships that load scrap iron for Japan. Raising his fist once and once again, he salutes the beloved China that he has never seen. Fall obscures the Golden Gate of the wartime city where, at the World Theater, he watches reel after reel of film unwind in darkness, moving pictures of China struggling to be free of English opium and missionary opiate, only to find Japanese slobbers and a gang of John at the door. So Mark asks himself, where Will we ever be free in China or America? But he sees life caught between class and capital, between black and white, rich and poor. Moon and tide thread the Pacific, October 1st, 1949. But China's liberation is short-circuited in America when KMT cutthroats <coughs> enter the auditorium, punching and pummeling patriots of new China 
He saves his kid only because here he was born. Moon and tide through the Pacific, causing Joseph McCarthy to cast suspicious glances to his left. On Telegraph Hill about Chinatown in their garage, Mark and Mai and Yogin set up chairs and serve steaming bowls of tea. There the high-end club meet secretly. Slender figures sing folk songs of new China, learning the Latin alphabet of the future. Breath bounces off light bulbs, warming the cold night as he vows to record all his life and his longing here. Moon and tide throughout the Pacific, driving up the western coast and down the eastern seaboard, scavenging dusty delta towns for Pearl River papers. He uncovers letters, photographs, lottery stubs, replays diaries, directories, genealogies, reviving a past. No one escapes his eyes, for Chinese in this world are scattered as their paper sons and unclaimed daughters flung so far across the sea. Moon and tide throughout the Pacific. Thus begins the journey of a man who walks between two continents. To gather materials for his records. 2,000 years, records of the historian. 5,000 miles from China to America. Thank you, Mark. The next poem uh, is written, it's sort of a family poem, it's called Laura Jung and My Mother, because Laura Jung and my mother have become good friends. And uh, I just wanted to read this poem to give you an idea. As they say, women hold up half the sky, and I think this is true of uh, Laura. And uh, Mark and Laura were also regular people. And, uh, they like to enjoy themselves and uh, eat Chinese food and all kinds of things and to travel around and, you know, kick back also. So I want to read this poem uh, because Laura John and her mother and father are from the same generation. So I just wanted to give you a sense of how it is to kick back with Laura John and my mother. And it's called Laura John and my mother unrecorded histories. March 30th, 2010. Mother was shy about going to dinner with Laura Jung. After all, Laura Jung and him Mark were a Chinatown tag team. You know, they see one without the other. Driving and eating at a meeting in Beijing or in Boise. They traveled along important scholars and journalists, historians, graduate students, and activists. Mother, on the other hand, was an ordinary ABC, born in America, of cowgirls and cowboys, immigrants who operated the Chinese cafe in Reno, lived and breathed the lease and small dollars to survive. Mother said she doesn't know about history and archives and all the things Mark and Laura had done together. What on earth would she and Laura have in common? My mother, Molly, can't talk history with a big H, though if you pressed her harder, she'd confess. She was the only girl studying Mandarin at UC Berkeley with the guys planning to go to China as military officers before World War II. I tell mother, hey, hey Mark went to Berkeley too, you know. Mother says, oh, but Laura speaks Chinese so well, and she didn't know if her own dialect, Zhongsang, or her Mandarin was adequate. 
I said, hey, Ma, don't worry. Lord speaks jokes out too. You understand each other, okay? So, and what's wrong with speaking English? <laughs> but mother can't talk history with a capital H. Yet she told me how she defied her parents' matchmaking, that her three other sisters were matched, but she said, if they insisted on marrying her off, she'd become a whack, different from her older brother who was sent to Lingnan in Guangzhou to obtain a superior Chinese education. In those days, maybe even now, sons were favored over daughters. So, when Laura and my mother had dinner that first time, then Laura told her, hey, if you need a ride anywhere, just call me. I'm only up the hill from you, 10 minutes away. I like to drive, and I've been driving all my life. Then, Laura opened the back trunk of her car, pressed large cans of almonds, cashews, and peanuts from Costco into my mother's embarrassed hands. Mother says, I can't talk history with all the Laura buddies. Ruth Ann McCann, Judy Young, and Phil Choi, and Marlon Hong, and all those folks, you know, I'm not so interested in all those history things. But it's a Chinatown secret to me. Somehow, though, only between Laura and my mother, they get along. And I assume they don't talk history with a capital H. But maybe they themselves, coming of age in Chinatown after the Great Depression, and the Big War, Joe McCarthy, civil rights, and their circles inevitably overlapping with that of their husbands. Finn Mark Lyne, my dad, Charlie, Chinatown writer as well. They covered the wars, the politics, and the ups and downs of Chinese Americans, others of their generation, scribbling by hand or typing way before the computer. Uh, in Mark, Ben Fee, Yogurt Wu, William Hoy, Maurice Chuck, so many others. Still, I get the sense that most folks just see Laura and my mother as wives, as those faithful, practical Chinatown women who accompanied, helped, fed, drove, or supported her husband's important endeavors. History with a capital H, or writing with a capital W. So, when Laura and my mother finally started having to dinner together, and that wasn't too many months ago, I began to understand that History is not always written with a capital H by men, but lived equally by women who are always devoted to the lowercase h by default or de facto. So I am now I'm glad I'm listening to Laura and my mother. Hey, it's time to listen. And it's time to eat. And maybe it's time to sit at the table differently. Thanks a lot. That was Russell Young from UCLA, poet. I'm going to show some images, so I wanted to uh, speak from the podium here. Um, first of all, thank you, Madeline, for organizing this. It's really um, terrific. I wasn't able to make any of the memorials. It's actually great news for this occasion. Uh, I woke up this morning. Um, after getting in really late last night from the airport, and um, you know, woke up with the question, well, what would Mark do if he was at this conference? And of course, the answer came right away. He would go to look for the local historical society. Um, so I thought I would uh, commemorate Mark by actually doing that myself. So I, I was walking around, and I, I ran into the local tourist bureau, 
And I asked them, well, you know, where is the local historical society? And this is just a few blocks from here. And they had no idea. So they, but they had a computer. They looked it up. And they told me one place to go to, which seemed to be some, some Austin Heritage Center. So I kind of walked a number of blocks and finally, you know, got onto that block that they said I should go to. And there was nothing there. So I went into a liquor store to find out, oh, do you know anything about this? And they looked up on their computer and uh, said, oh, you know, it's probably not right. And anyhow, it's like a, another mile or two miles from here, and it's some development center. So it's really not about heritage. So in some ways, this is kind of typical, right? I mean, this is what historians do. We're kind of walking around uh, and, and trying to find things that may not exist to begin with or once existed but have disappeared. I finally then uh, went to the Austin History Center. And it used to be the public library. It's just a few blocks from here. It's a big building, uh, kind of foreboding. And you walk up this hill, you walk up the stairs, you go into the door, and you smell immediately this kind of old, musty smell of an archive, uh, but also of, of carpets, and my allergies start killing me, which is always a sign of what, you know, as a historian, that's, that's the first sign. I, I'm finding the archive. My allergies are hitting me, right? And uh, I walk in, and I don't expect anything, because my experience has always been to go to the New York Historical Society or other comparable kinds of institutions, and people don't even know what you're talking about. But what was interesting was a, a surprise, and I think Mark would have really appreciated this. I walk in, and who's at the desk? There's an Asian American woman. And I say, oh, you know, uh, I'm, I'm interested in looking up something about documents of Asian Americans and Chinese Americans in particular. And she says, oh, are you, are you at the Asian American conference? Uh, I, I just saw Madeline this morning. And uh, she tells me, Esther Chung tells me that, you know, she was hired three years ago to to help document and to help uh, hold together the collections that are of Austin. I was astounded. I mean, this is in some ways an incredible measure of some of what Mark has done. You know, without Mark, I don't think this position would have been there, right? So all that story, that, that all the history that I think she was talking about, it, it has, has this kind of impact even, even in a place like New York or Austin or certainly the Midwest where I come from. So I wanted to, um, to show you some of the things I found. Okay, again, this is really not so much a history lesson, but this is really just to, just to share with Mark. And these are probably things, I suspect Mark already has this stuff, but I just wanted to kind of show you some things that I found that I thought Mark would have found interesting. Uh, first of all, he would have focused more on Chinese Americans. Cancel. Um, Thank you. <laughs> this. Okay. Now I didn't have time, and I wasn't able to actually uh, format this. But so you have to forgive me because some of these things are like way okay. They're sideways, and I'm not going to spend the time <coughs> trying to fix them. Okay. But one of the things, for example, is um, this amazing document. Well, of course, we've seen versions of this document, so you know you have to. I, I can't like tip this sideways for you to see it the right way. But this is a document from um, uh, from actually, the, the document says Joe Paul, okay? And if you look at the image, you see this is a Chinese man who has his forehead shaved. And, um, and what it turns out to be is actually, um, the certificate of Joe Singh. Now, for some reason, Joe seems to be a common name out here, but Joe Singh 
Um, Charlie is like more common in New York, for example, but Joe um, turns out to have uh, come to Boston and married. Uh, let me see if I can find some other documents. This is this is kind of history in action here. We're just kind of rifling through papers where he um, he met this uh, amazing Latino woman um, who. Um, uh, who we then had his family with. Okay? And I, I won't go into all the details, but this is, you know, this is the kind of stuff that Mark would have been finding, rifling through. And this is the kind of observation that he has made over the past 40, 50 years. Uh, we now are talking about transnationalism, and you know, that's become kind of a major paradigm that lots of graduate programs are being measured by. Well, Mark was really just following people, people's stories. And he would find a document like this in which you would find uh, you know, Joe Singh, uh, a laundry man, being married to uh, you know, Mexican, uh, America, uh, Mexican, Texas, a Texas, Texas Mexican woman, and having a family. That was uh, Professor Jack Chen, who founded the Chinatown History Project that later became the Museum of Chinese in America, and he teaches at New York University. Uh, he's talking about the way historians like uh, Him Mak Lai, Lai go about doing community history, going to archives, digging up papers of uh, interracial uh, marriages, uh, looking up uh, people's lives in these recorded documents. Um, so that was our uh, excerpt from uh, the audio of the, a panel discussion that included several other people and also the audience, uh, remembering Him Mak Lai, the people's historian. And earlier we aired a clip from our interview in 1999 with uh, Corinne Redgrave, who died a week ago, a socialist um, actor in England who uh, passed away. And we aired the clip of him talking about his role as a gay communist in um, a movie about South Africa, The Man Who Drove with Mandela. And uh, so that was uh, this week's edition. This is this week's edition of Subversity, uh, remembering Mahim Maklai and also dedicated to Aaron Redgrave, uh, Corin Redgrave, sorry. Uh, this is Dan Sang signing off for Subversity here on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. The opinions expressed on the show are not necessarily those of the regions of the University of California nor the management of KUCI.